Thank you for inviting me to speak. Thanks everyone for being here. Uh, my name is Kelly Cunningham and I'm an alcoholic. Hi Kelly. Hi Kelly. My uh, full name is Kelly Ferris Cunningham. And uh, you know, I always thought of myself, I'm an Irish alcoholic. You know, my, uh, my dad was an Irish alcoholic. My dad's dad was an Irish alcoholic. My mom's dad was an Irish alcoholic. And I don't know, I guess it was about, 10 years ago, my mom just, you know, out of the blue just said, uh, um, there's something I've been wanting to tell you, you know, it's like you're, you know, my mom basically told me that, that my grandfather, her dad was not her biological father, that he basically met my grandmother when she was pregnant with my mom, you know, so I thought, oh, that was cool for him to, you know, to, 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 uh, do right by, you know, my grandma. Uh, and then a couple of years later, my mom calls me over to her house and she's got her best friend in from out of town and they both look really, you know, like despondent. They're just like really nervous. And my, I just like, mom, what's, what's the matter? Is everything okay? And she said, she says, well, I'm getting on in age and there's something that I, you know, I, I need to tell you. And, and, um, and I've been scared to tell you. And, and I said, well, what is it? She said, well, she said, your dad is not your biological father. That you're a, a, a product of an affair I had with your dad's best friend when your dad was running around on me. And my mom, my poor mom, she was looking for just any sign of, you know, she just was so afraid that I was going to disown her. And at that moment, you know, the only thing I can, I could think of was, I'm not so sure I'm Irish anymore. Um, so, you know, I was rolling on the floor laughing. My mom expected me to be really upset, you know, so, um, I mean, I've been called a bastard before, but you know, it's like, I, I, I don't, I don't think anything of it. It didn't change who I was. And, and, uh, you know, my, my parents were, in the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, my parents were, were honky-tonkers. And if you don't know what honky-tonk is, honky-tonk involves neon lights, bar fights, country-western cheating songs, and bad domestic beer. Uh, and so, you know, we, I, I uh, was born in Kokomo, Indiana. It's a factory town, blue-collar all the way. And... Um, you know, it was uh, it was pretty tumultuous. You know, I I I've I feel like through God's grace and in recovery, I've been able to contend with my past. But you know, my dad was a raging alcoholic. You know, and he 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 you know beat my mom. I remember seeing watching him or see. I just remember him knocking her down so many times. You know, one time I was sitting at my dad was sitting at one end of the table and I was sitting at the other. And my dad found out that my mom put barbecue sauce on a roast and he picked the table up and all the food, the hot food came. I was like four years old, piled onto my you know, chair and, and all the food spilled all over me. And, and that just is an example of just, just crazy, raging, you know, just angry. I mean, I remember we would be driving in some, and my dad would get pissed off by another driver and he would literally have them pull over and he would beat the shit out of them, you know, and it's like, so this is the, you know, this is the model I had, you know, and, um, also, you know, my dad, 
sexually assaulted my sister when she was 12 years old. And I remember, I remember the night when it happened, you know, my mom was, was out at some, you know, bar tavern. And my dad was, you know, basically just kind of took it out on my sister. And it's really sad because my sister's, you know, almost 60 and she's still, you know, trying to put the pieces of her life together, you know, so, you know, just, just a little bit about, you know, a little background, my past, um, we moved a lot. I mean, I went to three different kindergartens. I went to three different first grades and, um, you know, there was a lot of financial strife and, and marital strife and, and it was just crazy. And, and I guess just when things had settled down a little bit, uh, my dad got a job in Houston, Texas. And man, I, you know, I had, you know, it was, it was, it needs to say it was devastating to, to, it was like actually moving from Kokomo, Indiana to, um, Houston, Texas in mid seventies was like moving to another planet, you know? And, and, um, I was about nine years old and it was really, it was really hard adjustment. So, but you know, my, my sister, I guess she, took off and she was gone for like a year. She ran off when she was like 15 and came back pregnant. And anyway, it was just, just a mess, you know, and, and, uh, um, I, I want to mention the Baptist church, you know, and, and, you know, I used to, I used to joke, you know, early in recovery that, Oh, I'm a recovering Baptist ha, 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 until an old timer called me out. He said, Kelly, he said, it goes against tradition to say disparaging remarks about, you know, uh, about any, any association or entity. He says that the AA has no opinion on outside issues and that there could be somebody that comes to their first meeting and they're a staunch Baptist and they could hear you disrespecting the Baptist church and, um, and they could not come back and they could die. This is a serious disease. And so, Anyway, but I did, you know, I spent several years, formative years in the Baptist church. It was very shame-based. Um, I was, you know, able to recognize, you know, some of the hypocrisies, you know, and so, you know, I, I just, uh, um, it was uh, it was kind of a trip, you know, uh, and, I, and I, I still, to this day, am, you know, processing that experience, you know, uh, uh, so, um Speaking of the Baptist Church, uh, there was a young man. He was a troublemaker, Henry Klepper, and uh, me and my best friend Ricky Anderson were were. It was, it was during the summer, right before I started high school, and Henry Klepper took us out after a pizza night at the church, and uh, we got us a bottle of MD twenty twenty, and uh, and and got drunk, you know, for my very first time. And man. I tell you what a release, you know, what, what fun it was to feel drunk for the first time. And, and, um, you know, I was still changing schools a lot and moving around. Um, and, and I'd finally, um, gotten into a, a group, uh, middle school and, and ninth grade. And then I, I got this, we had moved into a, a, a different neighborhood and I got this notice from the registrar said you you need to go to another school and i was like not again you know like ninth grade and i've been going to school with these guys since sixth grade that was like the longest i've ever been at any school and or with any group of people and man it was it was devastating but you know what i had 
I had alcohol and I had drugs at this point, you know, to help me uh, find a group of people to relate to. And um, here's the thing is that uh, my, my parents finally, you know, got separated and, and divorced. And so, you know, here I am, you know, 15, 16 years old, drinking every day, using drugs now, um, and and at the time that I needed the parent the most, my parents were out, you know, my mom was dating, my dad was dating, they were back to their old honky-tonk ways, you know, and, and uh, so I had, I had no controls, um, no external controls. Um, I surrounded my people, myself with people who didn't challenge my lifestyle. I was the guy that after everybody went home for curfew, I was the one who went around and picked everybody else up that got to sneak out, you know, and so I was the, that made the midnight run to go pick everybody up uh, who had to be home because I didn't have any parents at home, you know, I didn't have any, um, any restrictions. So, you know, what it was like for me in high school, think dazed and confused. If you've ever seen dazed and confused, that's exactly what it was like. We cruised around in really cool, classic cars you know this was like you know um, early late 70s early 80s um and man we had we had some fun you know and and but it was all about i was i was a good student i made a's and b's i went to class but i went to school pretty much stoned and as soon as you know we would sneak off campus at lunch and get stoned, and we would, as soon as school let out, we'd be at somebody's house playing what we called quarters. I guess they call it beer pong now, but we <laughs> called it quarters back then. And, um, you know, uh, um, we used to just do crazy stuff, like um, we would Wahoo beer. Uh, you know, if we didn't, I mean, even if we had money, we were just like, let's go Wahoo some beer. And the, the way you Wahoo beer is you walk into a convenience store, you grab a couple six packs, you know, you walk up to the counter and you look at the cashier and you say, Wahoo, and you run out the door. And we did it so many times and it was no problem. But one day we were cocky and we had just Wahooed a convenience store the night before. We're like, let's go back. And it was a broad daylight. I had $20 in my pocket. I could have easily bought beer. And the drinking age back then was 18, so I could, you know, it wasn't any problem for us to, to, to buy beer. Anyway, so we wahooed beer. The cashier was waiting for us. She was like, oh, you know, started screaming. And this guy playing pinball, yeah, that's how old I am. They were playing pinball, um, started chasing after us. And, uh, and, and as I was getting in, I, somebody was driving my truck, and then another guy that, that helped me wahoo the beer got in the middle i got in and this guy put his arm around my neck and tried to pull me out and my, the guy in the middle just punched the guy in the face and i remember looking in the mirror as we were speeding off the guy like rolling on the road anyway he stopped the car they chased after us they found out where we were the police came and you know 17 years old i get charged with robbery it's like fuck man it's like you know so um the thing about it is, though, is I, you know, I, I got into like a deferred prosecution program. I got put on probation for five years, and my, and I was, you know, I was had already applied and was accepted into college. 
And so, you know, you're talking about showing up in a probation office where, you know, very few people on this probation officer's caseload are going to college, you know, they're making A's and B's in school. And so they, she didn't drug test me or anything. It was a joke. I mean, I was like taking Mandrax and acid and Placidils. And I mean, it's like, that's just how I was, man. It's like, I would, I would get high off of anything. And probation was not a deterrent for me. Um, so anyway, they're like, you know, like I said, I've surrounded my people, myself with people who did not challenge that lifestyle. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I did not uh, make any efforts to, to, you know, to change. Um, so then, you know, uh, it's time, you know, time to go off to college. I, uh, I had a high school sweetheart and, um, you know, she and I went, went to Southwest Texas State University together. It's called Texas State now, but when I went, it was Southwest. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a party school. I mean, you could literally, you know, drink all night for just a couple bucks. You know, it was just, it was, it was pretty ridiculous. Um, I immediately hooked up with friends on the floor of my dorm that, um, you know, that supported my lifestyle. Uh, I had um, a bar set up in my dorm room. Um, we had a, you know, uh, a Budweiser neon light, you know, uh, you know, hanging up in there. And anyway, it was just, uh, just, uh, again, I, I was there to party, you know, and I, and I, and school wasn't that hard for me. So it wasn't a big deal, you know, but then, you know, I, I, I partied so much and I kind of used my high school sweetheart, you know, uh, for booty calls and stuff. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it was kind of embarrassing, but I was on a drug run to Houston one day and I, I, um, I came back and I noticed and my, my sweetheart's name was Tammy and, and I noticed it didn't look like Tammy had spent the night there, you know? And so I kind of panicked. I got this sinking feeling and, and, uh, I drove out to five mile dam and it was where we would always go. And, and there she was laying on a blanket with Michael O'Sell, man. And it was like, I lost her, man. I, I, I lost my high school sweetheart. I, through my alcoholic behavior, I chased her into the man, arms of another man. And she, she gave me plenty of opportunities. I remember she warned, she didn't warn me. She just told me about this guy. I was like, yeah, 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 go, go have fun, you know? Anyway, uh, it was devastating. And, and these were some of the really dark, dark years for me following that, the, the, like the two or three years after that. I remember one morning at 9.59, standing outside, a.m., standing outside the liquor store, and the manager was trying to find the, which key, and I knew which key it was. I told him it's the round one, so that he could open the door so I could get my whiskey, you know? It's like, I was just so, so desperate. Um, uh, about this time, I was, you know, started struggling in school. It was hard for me to to focus on my schoolwork. I was depressed. I just sat around listening to Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and Neil Young, sad songs for broken hearts, right? And uh, I remember one of my neighbors saw me drinking at two o'clock and she said, Kelly, is, 
isn't it kind of early for you to be drinking? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. And she didn't know that I'd started at 8 a.m., you know? So that's just what it was like. And, but I, I did um, get a job um, at the Brown schools in San Marcos. It was the healthcare rehabilitation network. And I got a job as a, as a mental health worker. Um, and I'll, I'll tell more about that, but I want to say one thing is that, that no one, again, no one to this point had ever challenged me on my lifestyle, right? And I've got this group of friends that support it, supports it. Um, and um, anyway, I, I get a paperback from Dr. Sheila Fling, one of my psychology professors, and she's like, are you okay on top of my paper? And I was like, whoa. And I, when, I, when I saw that, though, I, I don't know if you all have seen Pulp Fiction, where Marcellus, the character Marcellus, gets raped, and Bruce Willis says, are you okay? And Marcellus says, no, man, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. Well, when Dr. Fling asked me, are you okay? I could totally relate. It's like, I am pretty fucking far from okay. Um, but I was still just, you know, full blown party. You know, I would go to work, I would go to class stoned. I would go to work stoned. Um, and then um, I, uh, there was a real pretty receptionist at the Brown schools and, and I don't know what, it, what happened, but for some reason she took a liking to me and everybody was like, wow, Abby likes you. It's like, yeah, um, and uh, it was all about drugs and alcohol, you know. I mean, Abby and I basically were doing ecstasy together, you know, getting high, cocaine, ecstasy. And, um, you know, man, that was that was a big time for cocaine, too. It's like somebody was talking about paying off their college student loan. I was like, yeah, most of my college student loan money went to Pablo Escobar and he died like 15 years before I even paid off those student loans. So what a waste that was. Um, all right. So Abby and I are, you know, we move in together and, um, and man, I was just like, I had friends. I had this beautiful woman I was living with at a job. I was kind of struggling in college, but but this is where, where I remember feeling like I was at the jumping off place as described on, on page 152. It says, he cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. And I was, you know, I mean, I remember so many times I'd be at a, at a party and my heart would be pounding out of my chest from doing drugs. And I just, you know, I had people all around me and I felt so lonely and so scared. And I would just look up and say, God, you know, someday, someday things are going to be different. And you know what? Nothing changed because I didn't do anything differently to, to, to make an effort to change. Um, but finally, after, after the, you know, the drug use, the alcohol use, the, the despair became too overwhelming for me. I noticed in my benefits package at my job, it said that I could get a psychological 
evaluation. And I really wanted to learn how to use drugs and alcohol like a normal person. And so I went to see the psychologist, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like, man, this is not normal, you know, getting up, you know, and, and being fucked up literally from the time I woke up until the time I went to bed every day for close to 10 years. Um, and, um, but you know, bad news, the psychologist, uh, did not tell me it's okay. Yeah. You can drink, uh, and figure this out. He basically, I didn't know at the time, but he was basically paraphrasing the doctor's opinion from Alcoholics Anonymous. Some people can't drink and use drugs like normal people. It's like, <sighs> I knew that was me. And, um, I was overwhelmed, you know, uh, I, I, I checked myself into a treatment program and they, and they, but when they were doing the intake, they said, you know, um, you're going to have to go 24 hours without using drugs or alcohol, alcohol before you check yourself in. It's like, it's like, how am I possibly going to go 24 hours without using drugs or alcohol? This is unreal. This is not happening. But I did, you know, and, and, and through the treatment program, you know, they said, okay, you're going to have to start plugging in to Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. And, uh, and so, um, one thing I didn't mention is that before I took myself into treatment, I touched base with my group of friends and, um, you know, they were all shocked, you know, in fact, one person in particular, his name is Alan said, you don't have a problem. And it's like, I was really surprised. And, um, anyway, fast forward, you know, 30 years later, and who do I get a call from Alan and I helped him, you know, check into, into treatment. Uh, but anyway, I did have a problem and, uh, and I needed help. And I, you know, walked through the, the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, not knowing that, AA was not just a meeting. It wasn't just a temporary fix. It was a, a way of life. But at the time, I didn't know that, you know? And so I just, I went to meetings. There were some cool people there. They, I resonated with what they, what they said. And, um, but, you know, I didn't get a big book. I didn't have a 12 and 12. I didn't work the steps. I didn't get a sponsor. I was just going to meetings. I was still hanging out with my friends still living with Abby and Abby was like, she was still doing Coke, you know, drinking in front of me and smoking pot. And I would come home from work and I was like, you know, and, and so it was hard. And needless to say, I did not go all the way in and sit all the way down to AA. And, um, and after about nine months, I found myself in a real vulnerable position. And some of you have heard this story before, but Abby and I, you know, made a little trip to Las Vegas and uh, I came back drunk, stoned and married. And, you know, it's funny now, uh, but at the time it was overwhelming. You know, I, I, I felt, um, I felt like I was going to die. You know, I, I was making up for lost time and uh, I didn't have Abby's support. I didn't have anybody, to, you know, any friends to challenge me. I hadn't really connected with anybody in, at the river group enough to call and say, I need help, you know? So I, but I did, um, 
I did, I did make some um, drastic changes. What I did was I went back to the river group. I announced that I had gone back out. I needed some help. I moved out of the house where Abby and I were living in. I moved in with a fellow member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a big book. I got a 12 and 12. I got a sponsor and I started working the steps and uh, I just, I stopped hanging out with those old friends. You know, it's like, um, I was, I knew I was going to die. And so I had to completely change to transform my life. And it was, it was radical. And, uh, but it was, I kind of felt free in doing so, you know, I felt a sense of relief. It's like, it's like, I knew that I really needed to, to take my recovery seriously. And, um, um, I want to talk a little bit about, about my first sponsor, Charlie W big burly biker type. He was a, a deadhead for years, acid, you know, and in, in, in meetings, he rocked. We didn't have any rocking chairs, but he rocked in meetings. And, and uh, I think that was his way of regulating himself from all the acid that he had taken. But Charlie was such a loving man. And what I learned from Charlie, and I, at the time, I didn't really appreciate it, but every time I called Charlie, talked to him about my problems, first he, thing he would do is he would laugh, as he always did. And then he would say, Kelly, what would God have you do, you know? And, you know, at the time, I still hadn't really figured that out, you know, what that meant. But but I think what, what he was trying to ask me is, what's the next right action? Such powerful wisdom, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and like I said, I, at the time, I did not appreciate it. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Charlie died of a heart attack before I was able to go through my inventory process with him. It really was uh, was hard. Um, but uh, another another guy by the name of Jim P. Uh, he passed a few years ago, but he he took me through my uh, the inventory for the first time. And you know, um, I ended up divorcing Abby. Um, I got my own place. Life started getting better for me. You know, I went back to school and, uh, you know, it took me nine years to get my undergraduate degree, but I finished it, you know, and, and, uh, I quit smoking. I started learning how to deal with my anger. Um, I got a promotion at my job at the Brown schools. And, um, so after I graduated, I moved, I moved to Austin, um, I started working, I got a job right out of college, working as a juvenile probation officer for the Travis County courts. And, uh, you know, things were, things were good, except I did not establish myself an al- a, a new alcoholic home, a recovery home in Austin, right? So I'm still kind of trying to go to the river group in San Marcos. I was, you know, I went to Bolden, I went to Western Trails, I went to Northland and, you know, got a lot of wisdom, but I was, I was kind of back on the edge, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, so anyway, needless to say, um, I, I was, with hindsight, I, I learned how important it is for an alcoholic to have a home. Um, and I'll, and I'll, you'll find out why in a minute, but 
I didn't, um, um, I started, there, there was a, uh, a woman that I had known in San Marcos and when I moved to Austin and I was attracted to her and she was in recovery and her name was Diane and, and Diane called me out of the blue and said, Hey, I heard you're in Austin, you know, you want to go have dinner. And so, um, and then, you know, she was recovering alcoholic. I was recovering alcoholic. And you, you know what they say, you can always tell when an alcoholic is on their third date, right? There's a U-Haul outside. Uh, Diane and I moved in with each other. And you know what? It's like, my life is going so good. You know, it's like, and then, and then what do I do? I have to, you know, latch on to, you know, another, another relationship. And man, there were, I call them red flags or stop signs today. But at the time, you know, when, when the dopamine is going, you know, it's like, that's when we run through stop signs in relationships. It's like we, you know, I justified, oh, it'll get better. It'll be okay. You know, um, I, I want things to work out. So I'm going to, I'm going to ignore those red flags. I'm going to ignore those stop signs. I'm going to run through them. I mean, so, um, yeah. You know, the, with the pressure of living with Diane, to you know, she kind of came from money, and I didn't, and so my little probation job, <laughs> I didn't make much money at all, and uh, and so I started um, cleaning gutters and mowing lawns on the side, and little did I know that when I started doing that, that I would continue that for 23 years, working full time at the probation department and cleaning gutters and mowing lawns and doing landscaping and and uh, just so that I could, you know, provide uh, for um, my family. So uh, Diane and I got a, built a house on Lake Travis and, you know, all the trappings of, of, uh, of marriage, you know, but all the, the benefits of recovery, right? I mean, it's like I had already seen myself finish school, get a start a new career, meet somebody, get married. And then, and then, you know, Diane got pregnant with, with, uh, our first child. And, um, I was working two jobs and guess what? I didn't have time for. That's right. I turned my back on recovery. You know, I, I was, I had a strong foundation. Um, I had, you know, uh, principles instilled in me and I was, I was, I would not, I insisted that I would never drink or use drugs. And I, and, um, but let me tell you, there's a difference between being dry and being sober. And after, I, I would say, um, you know, with a tumultuous marriage, being dry, working two jobs, being stressed out, I, um, I uh, was uh, just, I was despondent. I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was overweight, very unhappy. It was like the, it was like it's kind of like the bank analogy. It's like I would make so many deposits in my marriage, and every time I tried to make a withdrawal, I'd get an insufficient funds notice. You know, but it's like, well, let me tell you what happened. You know, even with trying to, you, you know, here's the thing: is that I had these tools available to me. What did I do? I was trying to get self help books and Prozac and you know. Uh, psychotherapy and and I, it was just it was just such a mess 
but I remember we we had two kids by then, and the the marriage was just it was just terrible, and I was so unhappy. And I tried counseling, I tried mediation, and nothing seemed to work. One day, we lived down on Highway seventy one out by Lake Travis, and there was a pottery studio, and she had um, this big house. And the, and she would move all of her furniture over the room and have Ponty Bone and the Squeeze Tones out there. And so we would be like potluck, amazing potluck, amazing Cajun music. And it was just me and my kids. That was like my little respite away from a tumultuous family life, right? And I was upstairs and then she had this loft and I guess it was her meditation room and the kids were wrestling and it was just, it was such a happy moment. And, um, and I... Um, I remember seeing this little card on her nightstand and it said, I create everything in my life, period, everything. And man, that hit me really hard. It's like, so I, um, anyway, that, that experience changed my life because I started paying more attention to myself. I lost weight. I changed my attitude. I got a tattoo. Uh, my wife forbade me to get a tattoo and I got it anyway. Yes. Anyway, that was the end of the marriage. Um, and, you know, a friend of mine uh, said, you know, kids are more resilient than you think they are. And so my mom had moved to Austin by then. Uh, I pretty much at that point just had stayed in the marriage for economic reasons. And now I've got a place to stay. So I moved in with my mom, very tumultuous divorce. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I was, um, you know, determined to get my life back and you know here I was now um single again and and I was thinking wow I I've been I haven't had any drugs or alcohol for 20 years so I showed back up at the at Northland to get my 20-year chip and um and this woman kneeled down in front of me and tapped me on my knee and said Kelly you may not remember me and I said Carrie and it was a, 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 one of my litter mates from the river group. And if that's not a God thing, I don't know what is, you know, but so, so um, anyway, I, I realized at that moment that it's like, man, how, what a fool I've been turning my back on, on the program, you know? So I was like, I had a good decade in recovery and then I had a decade where I was dry and then, you know, I'm back. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I started, uh, getting back into a life of service, you know, um, helping out at the, at the club and, um, and, you know, picking up sponsees and, uh, go, just going to a lot of meetings. And, um, anyway, it was, uh, it was so good to, uh, to be back. And, uh, I'll just say real quick that I, you know, I kind of got crazy with the dating, you know, thing I was dating, uh, you know, people in AA, people from my office, online dating. Um, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, I was a good father though. I've never missed school activities or sports. I was a good provider. I prioritized my time with my kids, still working two jobs. Um, um, and, um, uh, one, one day I decided to, to go to, uh, Allendale, the Allendale group and man what a fun group that was you know and, and so i just thought you know i really tried to connect with northland 
and I just wasn't feeling it. And in 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 an Allendale man, I just felt like you know, it talks about in the big book on page one thirty two that we're not a glum lie. You know that we absolutely insist on enjoying life, and I just felt like this is this is this is it, Allendale. You know, it's a happy place, and um, so you know, I, I, I spent a lot of years at, at Allendale. Um, I went back through the um, inventory process with a sponsor and on, this time on sex, you know, love and relationships. And man, it's like, I, I, I went from, you know, being, you know, uh, someone with low self-esteem and, and being broken and attracting broken people. And suddenly I'd learned how to start being friends with women instead of seeing them as, ob, you know, objects. Um, I met uh, this, I met a woman, um, I was out with some, some AA friends, uh, dancing, country western dancing, and um, anyway, uh, I ended up asking her out, and, uh, and, and you know, she was, uh, she was not broken, and because I had done some work, I was able to, you know, attract this, you know, healthy, happy, vibrant person into my, into my life. And, and, uh, and we've been together for the last eight years. Um, so trying to, I'm running out of time here. So I'm trying to skip over some things that I had wanted to talk about. Um, let's see. I'll just talk about, you know, uh, the bicycle chronicles, you know, I, so, so, after all these years of being back uh, in the program and checking off all the boxes, you know, happiness and, and you know, um, I've still found myself dealing with a lot of anger and frustration, you know, and, and I remember it was like the beginning of 2019 and this guy at Northland, I, I, I still go to the Northland men's meetings on Saturday mornings and, and this guy said, you know, people are like tea bags. You never know what they're like until they get into hot water. And I was like, man, and that, that was another one of those things that just, just stuck with me. And, and, um, um, because I knew what I was like, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I was sponsoring people. I was going to meetings. I was a good father, a good <clears throat> husband, good son, but I was still an asshole. You know, I mean, when it got down, when, when things didn't go my way, I was not a good steward a representative for Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and that, that bothered me, you know? So I thought the problem is, is Mopac. It's traffic. That's the problem. So I thought I'm going to start riding my bike. I'm not going to be that guy that complains about traffic. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to get on my bike. Well, I got a bike and the first two weeks of riding my bike, I got into more trouble than the, in the previous probably two years in my car, you know, in terms of people pissing me off, me flipping people off, me chasing people down, banging on their windshield. It was like, it was, it was, it was not fun. It was, and then I, but I, I started realizing that um, it wasn't the traffic, wasn't Mopac, wasn't being behind the wheel. It was Kelly Cunningham is selfish and self-centered and needs to 
think very seriously about emotional sobriety, which had, had, was elusive to me for all these years. Um, even with all of the, the, the trappings of success and, and, you know, in and out of recovering. Um, and so I remember I, I asked God, you know, to help me to, re, to resist the urge to lash out, to resist the urge to criticize, to resist the urge to judge. And so, you know, the last, um, I guess the last year and a half, um, it has just been, you know, I, 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 we were driving the other day and I told my wife, I said, I don't get mad anymore. You know, when it was traffic situations, it's a miracle. And she laughed it's like a miracle. Cause she thought miracle was kind of too strong. But, but if any of you all know what I'm talking about, if, 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 if we can find emotional sobriety, it is a miracle. Um, uh, the shit that goes on in my brain and my head, um, you know, the, the biggest thing is just not learning to not take things personally, you know, and here's, here's the next step to that is how about me showing a little bit of love and compassion. So now I still ask God every day to, for me to resist the urge to criticize the judge. But now I ask God for me to, to shift my thinking to where my first impulse is love and compassion. That's my goal in sobriety now is, is that I can, I can use alcohol and my alcoholism excuse. Oh, my first impulse is always alcoholic, but it doesn't have to be that way. I don't have to own that. I can ask God to remove that from me. Um, and, um, you know, um, I've got one thing I want to read. I, I had some, uh, some stuff that I had pulled up, but due to time, um, but anyway, this is from the letter from Bill W. in 1950. And I think Bill Wilson is just fucking genius, man. I don't think happiness or unhappiness is the point. How do we meet the problems we face? How do we best learn from them and transmit what we have learned to others if they would receive the knowledge? And then it goes down further, says, when pain comes, we are expected to learn from it willingly and help others to learn. When happiness comes, we accept it as a gift and thank God for it. You know, for so many years I thought, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. But really what I want is to be peaceful. You know, I want peace in my life because I'm not always going to be happy. And shit's going to happen and people are going to not behave the way I want them to or expect them to. But I, I can still, I can be unhappy and I can still be peaceful, you know, and I can be dignified. And, um, and, but for God's grace, you know, uh, um, I would like to say that, uh, I forgot to mention that, you know, I moved from North Austin to South Austin, um, and it was becoming harder and harder for me to go to the Allendale meetings. And, you know, I was coming up on 30 years and it's like, man, two or three meetings a week is not going to cut it, you know? And so, so I, um, I showed up on, at the pink house, uh, you know, last summer um, and, uh, and claimed it to be my home. My office was right around the corner. And uh, I started going to the eight o'clock meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays and we got really close, that group, you know, and we expanded to Monday through Friday and, and then COVID hit and we've, we've remained close and, and uh, we've got some Zoom babies we've been taking care of. So, uh, but 
what a what a what a joy for for me to spend a lot of my years of my life on the edge, but I really just wanted to be in the middle. And today, I make a conscious effort to be in the middle of this program. You know, if you if you look at the old National Geographic uh, films where they show the the lion chasing after the gazelles, right? Which one gets eaten? The one that's on the edge, the one that's away from the, the group. And so I've learned, you know, to stay in the middle of this fellowship. And that will, I will, I will remain safe if I stay in the middle of this fellowship. And, you know, it even says, you know, to, to watch people around us sober up and for people to transform their lives. It says, this is an experience we must not miss. And I'm not going to miss it. I'm not going to turn my back on this fellowship again. I, I am so grateful for for Bolden as my family, um, and I've gotten so much wisdom the last year or so. And I really have tried to to be deliberate with being emotionally sober. Uh, I appreciate you all. I love you so much. And I'm going to end with the way that I end meetings that I chair. Page 84, we vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. It's so profound. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. So if you're new, come all the way in, sit all the way down, we need each other to get through this. We need to love each other through this. Sobriety is so hard. Life is challenging enough. Um, we don't have to do it alone. Thank you all for my sobriety. I love you.